You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Welcome to The Making of a Marketer, the podcast that takes you around the world of marketing one topic at a time. Hosted by digital marketing consultants Jess Nickerson and Andy Pondillo. We welcome you to join the conversation. Stream us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts. Now here are your hosts, Jess and Andy. We are back on The Making of a Marketer with a special Monday edition, changing it up a little bit on you this week, and hopefully starting your week off right. As usual, Jess and Andy here for another exciting episode, and we teased last episode that we had an exciting new series coming up. So Jess, I want to toss it to you because you played a big hand in getting our first guest for this series. So I'm going to give you the introductions of Parker joining us today, Parker Gates. And then from there, we're going to jump into the meat and potatoes for our C-level series and the making of a marketer. Yes, thank you. Parker is kicking off our C-level series, and we are so excited to have him. I have had the the pleasure and opportunity to get to work with Parker at the D School at Stanford, and we really bonded, I would say, last year because, Mm -hmm. Parker, did we do three programs or was it two? I'm, I'm already forgetting, but... I think we've done three over the last two years. Yes. And so last year, you used the opportunity to really get to know more about Parker. He's absolutely incredible. He is full of so much knowledge and wisdom. And and I'm very serious when I say that you are cool. And I don't I don't <laughs> say that lightly. Compliment. Yeah, I don't say that lightly. That is with the highest of compliments. And <laughs> well, I feel like I really have to show up now. <laughs> So that won't Parker, be a problem. <laughs> joining us today, the, the real emphasis we're putting on this series is as marketers, Jess and I, we've you know worked with a lot of variation of different companies across the globe. We've imp- mm-hmm. implemented marketing strategies from low budget to startup to high budget to corporate to executive coaching to all these different things that marketing entails. It's such a broad scope now, but right. sometimes what we find is that where do we bridge what marketing's trying to do and what somebody you know operating at the C level of a company what they're trying to see out of marketing? What are those green lights? What are those red lights? What are they trying to get out of it? And, and bringing you on, Parker, uh, just probably kick off for us, you know, a brief just introduction uh, as to what you've done in your career uh, in your past, what you're doing now, and you know, most importantly. We're going to talk about your experience as a co-founder and CEO. Yeah, cool. So uh, my early career, kind of like early 20s into early 30s, um, I was in IT. I was in healthcare IT, believe it or not. Um, If you've met me, you might be a little surprised by that. But uh, I did that for a number of years. And um, when I was in my early 30s, uh, I attended an executive education uh, workshop at the D school at Stanford that Jess was mentioning. Um, and it kind of radically changed my life. Uh, so I went in and learned how to apply what is called design thinking uh, to the work that I was doing, which was specifically on trying to improve the patient experience for cancer care patients. And um, I fell in love with that work. And uh, I started uh, coaching those workshops there. That was in 2011. Um, and then in 2012, my now co-founder, Anna Love, and I uh, started doing a lot of the same type of work that we were doing at Stanford in organizations all over the world. And so 
that was kind of how we uh, stumbled both into, into being uh, co-CEOs, but as well as into being entrepreneurs. So an important thing as an entrepreneur and as a CEO, I'm sure you know, is creativity. So we always start all of our conversations off on the making of a marketer with this question is when you're stuck creatively, what gets you going? You know, entrepreneurial spirit, what gets you going unstuck creatively and pushes you over that edge to start something like this? Hmm. That's a great question. And, and I'll approach this from a couple of angles. One, I'll approach it from somebody who needs to be creative uh, in, in the work that we do, uh, somebody that leads teams who also need to be creative and how do you help them get unstuck? Um, and then also as a guy who has spent the last two years working on his first piece of fiction, uh, which is a whole different kind of creative endeavor uh, than, the, than the business I've been in in the past. Um, my number one go-to answer is walking, uh, getting outside, move the body, Hopefully the mind will follow, um, but oftentimes it is just kind of getting that uh, somatic movement moving and, uh, and, and letting the energy kind of get unstuck and, and start to flow. Um, the second thing, it's more inspirational. Uh, a, a good friend and mentor told me years ago, he said, uh, you have to be relentless about seeking inspiration. That's some strong words, right? The word relentless is a really strong word. And, um, and I took that seriously. And, uh, and so I have been relentless about seeking inspiration. And two of my favorite places to, to, to get inspired are to watch comics and their process of like writing material and, and working it out uh, on stage. And also cooks. I love watching chefs. And like all my friends laugh. I say I'm not a foodie. Um, and I don't feel like I am, but I love watching chefs and how they come to create and the work ethic behind their creativity is, uh, those are the two things that like really kind of inspire me and get me moving. So you already touched on it in, in terms of how you became CEO and I find it fascinating. So this is something that I've tried to uh, analyze in my career. I love to just be in the room with different leaders, C-level leaders um, that that have gotten to this place and how they've gotten there. And you talked about just a roundabout way that, that you were in IT and ended up doing this. And it's a different path for everybody. Uh, so you helped us answer this question a little bit, but I like to just take it back again. Uh, when you were beginning this process of becoming the CEO, tell us more about that journey, what it meant to you. And, you know, you talk about being a writer. That is, we have another question coming up about that that we're very curious about. But tell us about that process, like just how everything kind of came full circle in this role where you were able to, you know, basically you could create a company from the ground up. Hmm. Well, you know, the, I think the thing that, that Anna and I saw early on was that there was a great need. Uh, so I always feel like I kind of cheated in entrepreneurship in that, like, I didn't go out and take this big risk and wonder if anybody was going to call. People were already asking us to do work uh, before we, you know, kind of started our own thing. So we had full-time jobs. Anna was working in, in Minneapolis and I was working in Nashville. We had full-time gigs. And we were like leaving on, you know, the odd Tuesday or Saturday or something to, to go do work kind of on the side. And, and so we knew that there was a need there. When we made the decision to leave our full-time gigs and join forces full-time, um, I think that uh, we thought less about being CEOs and more about doing, wearing all the hats that it required to like keep this thing going. So how do we bring in contractors and how do we do contract negotiation and uh, and all of those things. And so it wasn't initially, it was not so much a matter of, oh, we're CEOs and, and we're, we have a vision and, or anything like that. It was like, man, we're just trying to keep this thing floating. And, uh, and so there was a little bit, it feels like a little bit more out of necessity early on. Um, as time, and I'll also be really frank with you, I'm a guy that had a lot of baggage about what it meant to be a senior leader. And I had a lot of opinions about a lot of the senior leaders that I had worked for in the past none of them were uh, particularly positive. And so I was afraid of, of becoming a senior leader. I was scared about what it meant, about who that, what that would mean I am and who I am in the world. Um, and I would say that, I'll speak for Anna a little bit, I think she kind of felt the same way. And so we went into it with like a healthy uh, kind of skepticism and um, 
I don't know, irreverence about what it would mean to, to be a senior leader in the way that we wanted to do it, which was this kind of kind and nurturing and creative and strategic kind of role. And so uh, over the years, as the need for somebody who's thinking about strategy, like a CEO does, um, we started to kind of collaborate and, and, and come up with that together, do it together. Um, and then eventually, uh, towards the end of my tenure at, at Stoked, um, I thought Anna was doing, she's so much better at strategy that I asked her to take over as the, as the primary CEO. And I moved into a, a chief creative officer role. Does that, does that help answer? I think that's perfect because that shows, I feel like the story of becoming a CEO and going into to creative, like I feel like you see a completely different side of it too, um, which I find interesting. But you hit on one point um, I find really interesting about going into a CEO style role is we think about all these companies. We'll, we'll talk about our, our guy here, uh, Mark Zuckerberg. Um, a lot of opinions on him, for instance, but he started out very small. You know, this was a big idea. This is something he felt like he was called to do. And then before you know it, you know, it becomes what Meta is today. And it didn't happen overnight, but it still happened pretty quick. And yeah. it's something that I feel like we talk about leaders and senior roles as things start to take off and change and morph. And there's new, you know, real elements that come into the game. The bigger you get, the more potential problems that you could run into. I find it interesting that you know, you came in there with this core set of values as to what you wanted to be in this role and really let that, you know, flourish and and be part of your, your North Star, if you will. So I think that that's something, if, you know, you talk about someone from the outside looking in, that's one thing that I really look at from the outside when I see senior leaders is do they remain the same when a lot of things start to change around them? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a cool point. I'll say that I've also had the lovely experience of I've worked with lots of senior leaders uh, at some some really large organizations all over the world. And I have gotten to see some really amazing senior leadership and watch them work, their emotional intelligence, their emotional maturity. Like I could look at a, at a CEO of a, of a really large organization and I'd be like, that guy's got something different than what I've got. Like it's a different thing and it's impressive. And I love watching them work, you know, like it's, it's really fun. Let's take this down to another sphere though. So you, you mentioned it Southern, it, it's a Southern Gothic novel you're working on. So like my, my first thought, I'm thinking interview with a vampire here. That's huh? what comes to my, my mind first. I'm a very much a horror movie fan, but I could be way off base. So Tell us about this, and then I promise we have the serious questions uh, coming up next. <laughs> I, I love this question. Uh, it is uh, if I if I had to choose a, a genre, uh, I would I would probably say Southern Gothic. Um, and I, I've never thought about Anne Rice, but she's actually a really uh, she's, she's a really good Southern Gothic writer. Now that I think about it, I think she's easily lumped into horror. Um, but I would say that yeah, she's she's probably a lot more Southern Gothic than than people give her credit for. Another example of that would be somebody like William Faulkner. Um, I hate using that example because I'm nothing like William Faulkner. I can't write that well. Uh, so I don't mean to compare myself to him. I just mean to say that like if I'm uh, if I'm in a similar genre, it would be that one. Um, and uh, but yeah, that's the the genre that I fell in love with in my early 20s. Uh, my uncle Joe gave me a book by a writer named Larry Brown who was uh, living at the time in Oxford, Mississippi. And uh, he wrote about people in the upper Delta of Mississippi. And um, he wrote about their struggles and poverty and uh, their real inability to make uh, good life choices. And, uh, and that's the stuff that I fell in love with. And so when I finally had this opportunity in life to, to devote some time to really sitting down and, and trying to create a story from scratch, uh, that was the, that was the genre that I, I went to. Um, probably uh, the least profitable thing that I could possibly think of doing uh, is, is writing in this genre, but um, it's, it's what I love and I gotta stay true to myself, so. 
I like the value of staying true to yourself because, you know, Jess and I doing a podcast, you know, Jess, we're, we're not making money off this. We're doing it for the, the, the greatness of, you know, bringing knowledge to marketing. I think it, and I think being creative repays us in other ways, like just being able to utilize that outlet. You talk about walking, that used to be something I was big about doing to get my creative side flowing again. Then it's like 20, 30 degrees outside and I don't do it, but I need to do it more. Uh, but finding these different outlets, whether big or small, I, I find really important from the marketing side. So uh, it's something that we have seen with all of our guests on this program. They've talked about finding that outside creativity. So I would put two thumbs up and say, you know, don't stop going for it. And even if that book takes 10 years to write, you know, those are 10 years of valuable knowledge you'll probably pull from it gosh i thank you for that and and I, I couldn't agree more it's you know at my age you can get to this place where you're like i'm too old to publish and you know i'm too old to write a first book and you know a lot of that self-chatter can kick in and uh and talk you out of doing it and talk you into you know sitting out watching some netflix for a few hours but yep. um but uh no i i appreciate the i appreciate the support there the, the one rabbit hole. That, oh, I'll, I'll go ahead, Jess. I'll tell you about the rabbit hole here shortly. Yeah. I was going to say, we'll have you back on the show when you're ready to start thinking about marketing and publishing. There we go. Because we yeah. could do a whole episode on that. There's a, there's a whole world I know nothing about. I, I read about it a lot. And, you know, if you're self-published or if you're, you know, the support that you get from a publishing house these days is radically different than what you probably would have gotten 20 years ago from what I understand. And so uh, to publish today is, is a lot of work by the writer themselves. And so uh, if you want to be a working writer, I think you have to be part creative, part business person, heavy marketer, uh, going on the road, doing book tours and, uh, you know, print your own collateral and getting that stuff out there, working socials like crazy, you know. Yep, it's uh our we we've been close to doing it. We had a, a 100 posts in 100 days challenge on LinkedIn. Uh, Justin, I've done pretty good at it. I I would say that I've probably been doing more like five posts for seven days. So I feel like it's a good start. We're getting there, but definitely I, I see the same thing. It's just a lot of promotion. It's just hustle, hustle, hustle. When it comes to book culture, no different than you know musicians i would say that are out there right now that are really just plug it away at instagram and tiktok but i promise we got some marketing talk here so we're gonna we're gonna sway this over to our marketing sector so very simple question we're gonna kick it off to you is what is your definition of marketing and really what is your definition of marketing you know when you were in that ceo hat and, and having to to build stoked up and get it to where it was Great question. Um, I think it is, well, I'll answer from, from what we did at Stoked, which is a little bit different than what I do now. So I do a lot more like executive coaching and advisory consulting stuff nowadays. And so they're a little bit different. So I'll give you kind of two answers, but I think that marketing is, is, is I'll say simply pr promotion. Um, and I'm going to use that word simply and all the marketers are out there are going to be screaming at me. Uh, I think that there's a lot that goes into that. Uh, but if I have a product or a service, and I want the world to know about it, I have to promote it or rely completely upon word of mouth. And uh, I've tried relying on word of mouth and that can, can work well in, in some scenarios. But if I want uh, to get the opportunity to, to serve people that are not within my local reach, then marketing becomes a really important part of my business strategy, right? And so I think about marketing as encompassing all of our communication, uh, all of our design, all of our creative uh, and, uh, you know, it has to be wrapped inside a, a really thoughtful and intentional strategy. So when you were at Stoke, there had to be a measurement, of course. That's our, our favorite yeah. discussion Justin and I have. It, it's, that's another rabbit hole, is that there is always a talk about, is the marketing working? And when we talk about timelines, when should the marketing start working? So how did you view that through your lens? This is a, this is a, Anna and I had a lot of really great conversations around this. Um, I think there's a couple of things to think. One, like actual measurement of the marketing that you have in place of what you're executing on. So 
at Stoked, we did a lot of like creative content um, work. And so we made a lot of videos. We had a few seasons of a podcast kind of years ago. Uh, and then we published a lot, um, you know, uh, on Medium back in the day, which was the kind of the primary forum. So um, those were our three big channels of like pushing uh, content that we made. Um, so of course we watched the, the more obvious stuff, likes, dislikes, engagement over socials, things like that. Um, but the thing that we were always looking for, the thing that we actually gave it to him about was um, did a piece of content actually result in somebody calling us and saying, hey, we would like for you to come do some work for us. Can we, you know, point dollars to, to the marketing effort? Um, and that was always much harder. And so what you're left with is then, okay, what we're working towards is a much longer game around brand awareness. And this is obviously much harder to quantify. You both know this already. Um, and so uh, if our brand is out in the world, if our vibe is out in the world, if the way that the way that we worked, which is a, a big part of what we did at Soaked, it was not just the job that we came in and did, but it was how we did it and how we left people feeling. And so uh, that's a big part of the work that Stoked still does. Like to this day, if you, if you walk on the end of a Stoked engagement or the end of a Stoked workshop, everybody in the room is going to be floored. They're going to be like, that was a, you know, transformative three-day experience, right? That's part of brand awareness. That is part of our marketing because they will go to another organization. They'll move to a new job. You know, so, you know, we tend to germinate in this way and that has led to something. So people that might be a current client, let's say they, let's say they consume a piece of content. They watch a video that we made and they love it and they comment on it. And they're like, oh man, that was a really great video. I love that. But they're already a client but then they leave and they move from a healthcare company to an insurance company. And all of a sudden we've got interest from an insurance company. It's like, well, I can't directly assign X video to X dollars, but we know how it got there, right? So we start, we start thinking about brand awareness and germination from one organization to another. So I used to say when I was at agencies, I had this running joke about if marketing worked or not. And I would ask, and I try to do it in a way that was as politically correct as possible. I would say, did you make money or did you not make money this year? Right. And they said, oh, we made profit. We got, you know, these ex new clients or working in EDU, we, they would say, um, we filled up our classrooms. It was, you know, a record high. We filled it two months before we thought. Then I would ask what marketing channels were you operating? And we're like, oh, we we're just using you guys. And I was like, then it probably worked. And they would, you know, go back to like measurement and conversions and all this. And I think it's wonderful. There's a great place for it. But word of mouth, I find, is almost prompted by marketing and, and vice versa. So you need that little push just to get it going. And especially in the world that Jess and I live in, is we have these types of strategies we implement that are very long tail. They could take a very, very long time. And you hit on it a little bit early is that really the growth part of starting Stoked. You had to, to give it really that time to get to that point. Yeah, yeah. Couldn't agree more. I, I think of an easy example. I, I remember making a video, uh, it's probably five years ago, and it didn't get a lot of traction. Like we pushed it on YouTube. We pushed it on socials newsletter. Like we were trying, you know, we were always under the impression that like one piece of content was going to blow the roof off. And, you know, that's where all the clients were going to come from versus building a body of work, which is what we later came to, to understand. Um, but at that initial time, I remember one person saw it. And although the view count never went up, he was, he was the CEO of a, of a private organization, but a pretty big organization. He was really well networked. And everybody that he talked to, he would tell them about this video and what it meant to him. And so here we go again. There's this really interesting, very hard to track phenomenon of our marketing in action uh, without having any metrics to it, without having anything that I can specifically point to and, and articulate. So it gets tricky, man. It gets really tricky. And so what, oh, go ahead, Jess. I was going to say, and what I, I love what you touched on, I mean, there were so many things that were just spot on, but we talk about this a lot in the, the B2B marketing and branding space, but like the strategic vision that you had of like thinking about your future buyers, 
So we talk a lot about you got a brand because they're going to be most of your buyers are currently out of market. So you have to think about like this idea of like creating the experience, creating the brand for these future buyers right. that when they're ready, they're going to yeah. be in the market. So it seems like you and Anna were very strategic with your planning and thinking about how people move from organization to organization mm-hmm. and the word of mouth will spread. Yeah, we, I think we started to see it early on. I mean, uh, you know, we're, we were taught at Stanford, like to, to obviously to watch, to gain empathy and to be observant about what we're, what we're seeing. And one of the, one of the things that we started to clearly see is that like, we're going <coughs> into an organization to teach design thinking as a means of helping people solve their innovation challenges. But what we quickly started to realize was that unless an organization was culturally mature enough and ready to adopt something like design thinking, uh, then it was never going to work. You know, I could go in and I could teach them lean or I could teach them Six Sigma, but if culturally they're not ready to start practicing that stuff, uh, it didn't matter. So we knew that we started to, we knew that we had to start doing culture work first, but at the time it wasn't very sexy to sell culture work. You can't sell culture work. You could sell innovation work at the time. Nowadays, I think uh, everybody is a little more um, comfortable with, you know, the language around culture and what that means. And, and they, they see the, the ramifications of, of having an unhealthy culture. And so now they want organizations like Stoke to come in and say, like, help us with our culture. We want to be more creative. We want to be safer. We want to encourage people to be vulnerable. And so you can, you can start to market around things like that, right? Uh, uh, but we had to wait for that. We had to wait for that moment. For a long time, we just had to sell good old innovation and we'll help you launch products and services and then we'd sneak in the back door and do all this culture work. And, you know, uh, that's kind of how you had to do it for a while. So tell me about how involved you were in the the marketing was stoked uh, at the position you were at. Is there, do you think there's a right amount uh, of, you know, involvement that a CEO should be, especially, you know, when you are in a startup phase, in a growth phase, are you, does it feel like you needed to be very hands-on? Yeah, we were extremely hands-on. Uh, we never wanted to dedicate any budget to it. Uh, we didn't know what kind of budget should be dedicated to something like that. Like we had, we had no idea what we were doing. Um, so, uh, you know, we were making stuff, and and the, the you know, fortunately, we were busy uh, for the most part. Um, and so, I think it was probably around years four or five. Uh, that um, Stoke just celebrated 10 years, uh, like recently, maybe, maybe they're at 11. I can't remember. Um, but our years four or five were when we started to get a lot more intentional about marketing. And so uh, I, I took it on, you know, Anna and I were co-CEOs at the time, but I said, you know, we were starting to divide and conquer around certain things. And there were certain things that she was much more suited to do than I was. But I said, I'll take on this marketing thing. We agreed on a budget I introduced a strategy, which was kind of a shot in the dark. She said, you know, go with it, run with it. And, um, and then I went out and executed on that strategy. And that's how we did it for the next few years. And a lot of it was, was based on us uh, creating, again, like I said, you know, creating a lot of interesting content, stuff that we found truly interesting and stuff that allowed past clients to stay connected to us and to stay inspired by the work that they had done with us. So typically, you know, I mean, if you've ever been part of a workshop, it's kind of this like mountaintop experience, right? And then you come down and you go back to work and then there's that jackass at the water cooler on Tuesday and he sucks and you kind of get back into like normal work mode, right? Um, We wanted to continue to provide inspiration. We wanted to continue to to keep people interested in in some of these things that we were talking about and the, the work that we were looking at. So that's where... Uh, our ideas for content came from. So the, the, the videos that we were producing, the podcasts that we were producing were not always strictly about design and innovation. They were often about uh, creativity and culture, um, but in any context. Uh, and so that was the stuff that was most interesting to us. And so we really followed our hearts, I would say, in that regard. Um, and it was probably year six or seven before we started to get some help on marketing. So people to, especially around things like socials that we just couldn't keep up with, like the, you know, barrage of uh, trying to, you know, be present and all, amount, you know, all that noise that's out there. 
And when con doing consulting work, I really like that you built the vision before maybe you got into more of the paid marketing side. Jess, I, I love your opinion on this too, because sometimes I go into consulting work, sometimes workshop work, it's agency work from years past. And I would go to a client, and I, what is your vision for your company? Because I can't, I can market, but I can't make the vision. That's not something that a marketer, I mean, I guess they could, they could try to do it, but it probably, you know, would really need to make sure it's in line with the company leadership. Mm -hmm. But I would always say, if you give me a vision, and you believe in that vision, a great marketer can market just about anything, but they have to know a clear cut, basic strategy of what the vision is. And it sounded like you did that for years before the marketing came into play, which I think is very interesting because we think of the startup world right now, where you'll see a startup, they come in, they're not really sure, they're kind of going to learn a vision as they go, but they have all this capital and they're just going to dump money right out of the gate. Sometimes it works, sometimes it falls flat immediately. But I'm curious both of your thoughts, you know, kind of on that concept, because I think that's something as a marketer, I strive very, very, very hard to figure out what the vision is before I put any other dominoes in place for marketing. Mm. Um, Jess, I'd love to hear from you first. What I would say, yes, I, I, I think it is important to have some sort of direction and this vision, but what I, I'm, I'm kind of getting a vibe and, and Parker, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would also say too, you may have had a vision and strategy, but you were, you were building it out and like you also have that test and iterate mentality. So I think having some direction, yes, very important, helps us all align, understanding your customers, your clients, but then having that courage to like, you just got to get started because you could also spend years yeah. just trying to build out this perfect vision. And we've talked about this a lot before, and you really just need to take action. Yeah. Man, I, so yeah, those are my words right there. Like I would, I would totally echo what you just said in that, uh, yeah, that there's very much a test and learn opportunity. Like let's prototype this in, in the lowest resolution way possible. Uh, let's not spend a ton of money and a ton of time and a ton of energy. Let's start to see if there's a there there, you know? Um, let's see if we even like, if we put out this piece of content or this piece of marketing, do we agree with it? Like, does it feel aligned with us or does it feel like I'm just chasing money and customers, you know? Um, and so for me, the alignment was so important. So absolutely a lot of uh, prototyping. Um, I do also agree that like, uh, I love the old metaphor of like, take away the map and give me a compass. Like I need to know the direction, but I don't need to know every step of the yeah. way. Yeah. And that's what we've done. I think so effectively in the marketing world is if you could just so even as a compass, like you said, just give us some sort of like guideline as to, to where it's going a little bit. And some of those early years, I think you'll know because that trial and error helps get you there to figure out what your audience is going to resonate with and how that still fits to your values. But things like, you know, when you bring in someone that is very good at marketing social media, like what is that hashtag? What is the color scheme that could best go with this? Who are creators in the industry that might be able to take us a little bit over the hump? You know, when you start yeah. combining those things and get a little bit less just instant transactional, but more, you know, big picture, then I think all those little other dominoes start to follow and, doesn't lead, you know, there, there's not a better question that this would lead into than this is through all of this talk, Parker, you know, just big question. We'll get asked a lot. And I think that the attitude has changed, obviously, in more recent years. But does social media, all this work we're talking about, does it really pay off at the end of the day for a brand that's trying to build themselves? Yeah, I mean, that is that is the big question. It is. Um... I was literally just having a, a conversation with Jess and I have a, a friend in common, Jeremy Otley. He and I were talking about this the other day and we were talking about consistency of posting on LinkedIn specifically. And he said, I don't ever think I've gotten like a gig or some kind of a relationship off of a LinkedIn post that I've made. I don't know that anything's ever kind of uh, started there. 
I know for sure that I've had at least one where I posted something online, somebody reached back out and said, I want you as a coach. Like that happened uh, not long ago, actually. So uh, the, the return rate is not as high as you think it would be. Like, and so again, going back to what I said earlier, I thought I was going to, you know, create one video with, with my buddy Jacob that we made videos at Stokes. And I was like going to create this one video and everybody talked about viral videos. So I just assumed that like, you're going to get one eventually. And the odds of getting a viral video were like hitting the lottery. Like they're so slim, but we hear that language all the time. So we assume that it's possible for us too, which is probably why so many people buy lottery tickets. Um, and so, uh, I guess all, all that to say is that uh, the way that I thought about um, social media and the way that it would work is that I put a little bit of work into it. It would catch on somehow magically and I would you know, ride some wave and we would have tons of customers and, uh, and get to spread our message. And I, I think that now it's just part of the way that the world works and that above anything else, you know, if, if you're going to participate in that world, which I think you have to, um, again, if you want to get outside of your own, uh, local, you know, kind of, uh, word of mouth group, um, you have to be on social media and it's, it's kind of a shame to like, feel like you have to try to stay above the din of, uh, noise that's out there. But I think with, with creating, you know, real good, uh, honest, authentic content, doing it consistently and having lots of patience. Um, it's at least that, like, that's the tack that I'm taking these days. You know, like I have a certain amount of content that I put out on LinkedIn every single week. And, um, and I believe that over time I will build a body of work and, uh, and somebody can look back and see that. And I'm not counting on the one, you know, I, that was a real dinger of a post today. Like, you know, uh, getting past that myth and just showing up every single day and getting the work done. It sounds just like Parker's ahead of us in a hundred posts in a hundred days game that we're trying to play. So we'll take motivation from the results you're getting on your daily posts. Yeah. Just, just don't expect like that, that need for immediate gratification from a post, like get rid of that. Like, I think it's uh, learned that there's a long game to play here um, and that's okay. It's just like fitness or health or anything else, right? Nothing comes in one day. So uh, just, you know, one foot in front of the other. So let's round it out right now. Final question. It's very relevant uh, right now. So definitely looking at your LinkedIn feed. I know all of us see it, you know, in the tech industry or, or really a lot of industries. You, you hear recession, you hear layoffs, you hear changes, chat GPT. My entire feed's talking about AI and I can go down a three-hour rabbit hole real quick reading about it. There's a lot of things happening right now, Parker. So if somebody was getting into this game right now and I'm an entrepreneur, I'm ready to go for it in 2023, what would be your advice? And would it be any different than maybe what you were doing just a few years ago? Um, I, I'm a big believer in entrepreneurship. Um, and I, I think that I would love to see 7 million companies, you know, like that's, it, it, it that doesn't really work that way. Right. Uh, but you know, that's a thing that I would love to see. So, yeah, I think that if somebody is, is uh, feels that they are ready, there's never going to be a perfect time. It's like that old joke, like there's never a good day to quit smoking. Right. It's like, you know, uh, so the time is now. Um, and even in the midst of a recession, even in the midst of banks collapsing in Palo Alto, even in the midst of, uh, you know, these crazy new technologies that we cannot even imagine, you know, like what it's going to look like in six months or six years. Um, I think the time is now, if it feels important to you to bring a product or a service to bear on the market and you feel like you can genuinely serve people um, and that allows you to earn a little bit of money and feed your family, man, like I'm all in for that. Like I support you on that. And I think you should go for it. And uh, yeah, I'm all in. I don't, I don't think it's a time to, uh, now if you said, Hey park, we'd love to give you $50 million and you're going to launch a company. That's a different kind of question for a guy like me, you know, but if it's like scrappy startup, you know, kid in his attic, like I'm like, go for it. You know, like those, those are two different things. So. No, that's a, I, I watched a show bar rescue quite a bit and, mm -hmm. uh, it's a great program. Just, I see you shaking your head. I, I'm, are you a fan Jess? Have you watched it? 
I, I have not, but I just laughed because we have a lot of reality TV references yes. from Andy over here. So you're That's keeping me on the game. Yes, uh, I we could do, and this is a future episode, the social media of reality TV. You would see me nerding out the entire time. So we'll, <laughs> and it's very select shows, too. But either way, back to, to Bar Rescue, is we find actually on this show, there's a lot of entrepreneurs that go into opening a bar or people that have inherited a lot of money and they go and open a bar. And then on the show, it's just like, you know, we had $5 million worth of, of money and then we went and just started this thing and put our entire savings account into it. So what Parker, what you said, if someone handed me $15 million today, I would probably take 10 million of that and just put it in my bank account, be like, we're cool. And then the other 5 million maybe could be the play money. So I think that's right. how I would go about thinking it, but it just reminded me of Bar Rescue where they empty everything into the bar. Yeah, I, I appreciate that discernment. I, I think there's a there's a little bit uh, a little bit of intelligence can go a long way. And so I don't know that I would dump everything in the market today. Uh, I would be a little more thoughtful, and and certainly I would collaborate with some much smarter people than me. So, uh, but yeah, if you want to if you want to go, I've got a, a client of mine who just started a gutter cleaning business, and she's killing it. Like, and I'm like, I love that she like you know moved from this executive position she had. Now she's out climbing ladders cleaning gutters, she makes a fortune and she's outdoors and living up in Oregon. And I'm like, I love that you did that. Like it's, you know, I just think that's the coolest. So anyway. No, I mean, it's something that somebody needs, you know, right. and if you can find that there's an avenue for it, but I know we're on time. This was a wonderful interview, Parker, Parker Gates, and definitely we'll be looking forward to that book. So follow Parker Gates on LinkedIn, um, updates about your, your consulting work, some excellent tips you put out. I believe it was today about senior leadership and valuing themselves. I found that really insightful. So a great multitude or different pieces of content. We just really enjoyed today really traversing through your brain in a lot of different ways. So we're really looking forward to seeing what you do in the future. Guys, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And Jess, it's always good to see you and uh, work with you in different ways. Definitely. Thank you, Parker. Thanks, Parker. See you guys. Bye-bye. So Jess, I as always, had a lot of great takeaways from that one. Yes. Um, it is interesting to hear a company, I, I will admit, I haven't dealt with startups to actually the last few years. The companies are just getting going from the ground up. And I actually work with a lot more of what would be considered in the small to medium-sized businesses through my career. So they had already done that phase or they were like restaurants or engineering firms or something like that, but not as much like the tech type, techie type startup things. And it was just interesting to hear Parker's mind about how the idea comes about, how they go for it how it gets from A to B. And then 10 years later, it becomes this, you know, much bigger company. But sometimes some things I forget about is that when they're in that CEO chair and they have a few employees, they're really doing everything at the beginning. And that is very, very interesting to me because they can really have that vision near and dear to their heart and start to finesse that once more people come aboard. Absolutely. That was definitely a surprise to hear Parker's experience and how he really managed uh, Stokes' marketing effort for multiple years before uh, bringing on the function in a, a more uh, a more grand way, yes. per se. Yes. And, that's, and that's not too different than a lot of the big sites. Like We can talk about you know, early days LinkedIn, our boy Tom from MySpace, we could talk about him sitting up, you know, uh, in a room somewhere, or, you know, most famously, and you know, obviously has a, a full motion picture behind it, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, and originally Facebook, now Meta, you know, these were small startup companies where at the very beginning, it was really just a few people in a room putting together, of course, the product, but they were doing everything A to Z to try to get this thing going. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that I loved that Parker mentioned, which I don't hear much, but I thought it was just so thoughtful and the approach that he had in thinking about what type of leader do I want to be? 
and, and like you mentioned before, talking about his values, I, I feel like that's very similar to just marketing a product and service when you're thinking about that vision initially, like thinking about, okay, what's what values do we want to convey? What do we want our audience, our, our clients, customers to feel? And I love that he did that before and, uh, really, really getting into it. And also something key there is he didn't necessarily start his career as, you know, I'm going to go to X school to get Y certificate to become this role to be VP and then to be CEO. Like it was something more natural to him. It came to him as something that he valued. You know, I think there's a lot of people I've worked with. I, I often will say some of the smartest people I've worked with are working on really small budget somewhere doing something very creative. It just doesn't ever get seen. But those are people that could maybe not overnight strike word, but overnight they could start taking the steps to doing what they really want to do. And they might have the brain to do something like Parker's doing to go out there and, and run their company and start a big idea. So I found it interesting that it was very much values driven that got him started. And, you know, it, it's just CEOs and just people that make it to that level. I think it's such a different path for each one. So I like, I, I always appreciate that a lot. You know, I, you do a lot more executive work than, than I have, Jess, but I know something that I find fascinating just to hear executives talk because I feel like I learned something different. It's, it's a world that I'm just still, I would say, learning right now. But I feel like every time I have a conversation, I learn something just super different that I wouldn't have expected. Definitely. They, they, they are just like all of us. They're just people. Most definitely. So another great episode. We do have the series we're building out right now. So we're going to take a trip through different people that, that are C-level. So our hopes are we'll explore some of those other positions, such as a CRO or a CMO, and, and what are their duties? And you know, I think it's just a big question. Like how do they interact with marketing? Because marketing we touch so many different places in a company whether it be sales product and then obviously the sealables but what is success and this is something i'm looking forward to once we get towards the cro section of this because there is so much emphasis on budget measurement and time and how does that all come together and what is the true answer on what marketing has to be able to show and what is the timeline to do so. I think it's such a gray area that I just, I'd love to keep delving into those conversations about what is success at the sea level. I love it. And and we we hit the nail on the bull's eye today with Parker because Parker couldn't get much closer to the marketing function at the CEO level. So I'm I'm really excited to hear more from these executives and learn more about their experiences with marketing. Definitely. And he talked about the whole thing about going viral. You know, that's that's uh, the, the ultimate temptation, I think, for anybody that works in this industry. But if you're just trying to go viral, it, it's tough. You know, it's, it's something I've, I've worked with companies and Let's say I've worked with a hundred. I could probably count on one hand the amount that have gone viral with anything. So it's very, very tough to do. Absolutely. We've definitely heard this from our our previous guests. And again, Parker hit the nail on the head with the branding piece, consistency, uh, being authentic, being true to your values, your voice. I mean, it, it doesn't get any better. And he went into the personal branding lens too. A lot mm -hmm. of what he said really kind of mimicked some of what we heard from our influencer series where he's doing a lot of his consulting work, his posts, senior leadership styled posts. Do like the notion that he put on there about, you know, does LinkedIn 
help somebody get a job, get seen, do these things. I actually, I didn't want to derail the interview too much at this point, but I can say from firsthand before joining LinkedIn, which makes it awesome that I work here now, is that two jobs ago, it did get brought up in my job interview about the posts I was putting on LinkedIn and how I found them insightful about marketing. In my last job, I was initially contacted by a recruiter through LinkedIn that saw me through the feed of the different posts I was putting up. So those two jobs inherently, though, helped me learn LinkedIn at the level I do now because I used it quite a bit. And now I do work at LinkedIn. So fun story, I will tell you through my own data that it works. I love it. Yes. And, it, you know, and it, it, it seems like it, it's working for for Parker slowly but surely. And just based on what some of our past guests have said as well, I think what the, the game changer is, is that people generally, genuinely want to build relationships and they, they want to help each other out. And that's where I think LinkedIn sets itself apart from maybe some of the other social platforms. Definitely. It's a, it's very community-based and yeah, that that's probably what's always gravitated me towards the platform. But we couldn't talk community-based or close this program without, you know, discussing what we're we're working on right now. So Jess, you sent out a newsletter about the the Tom from MySpace effect, but it's our new newsletter, an <laughs> excellent addition to the podcast. So I want to give you some time just to introduce that you know what we're trying to get out of it and then i could give us when we close just speak about what's going on with tom our, our guy yeah so yes we launched a newsletter uh, that's produced by the making of a marketer podcast and essentially you know we'll we'll put out something monthly and we'll just we'll share inspiration uh, tips uh, best practices, you know, everything that we can think of that's tied to Tom from MySpace and, and really talk more about how Tom from MySpace has been such a, uh, a crucial piece in our social media landscape and how it has evolved to the social media that we are experiencing today. Most definitely. And an update on that, we are still efforting him, but I <laughs> feel like on the next edition of the newsletter, I feel like it would be cool to feature some of, of what our asks are too, you know, um, and what it has Andy tried to do. We can give an update on each one, you know, how are we getting a hold of him, why he's awesome, why he's come on this podcast and speak to us and talk about why he built MySpace and why we need him to run or, you know, or, or become a, a voice again in uh, the social media world. So we're definitely going to keep the MySpace effect going with the newsletter. It's a tied to uh, Jess Nickerson, your LinkedIn page. So search Jess is where you're going to find it, uh, but it'll be coming from her each and every month. Yes, I. It, it sounds like a love letter to Tom from MySpace. We just need to know what he's doing. That's yeah. the big thing about this podcast. Like what happened to him and, and talk about how awesome his photography is. So, you know, there's still the rumor out there about Twitter going to put out a new CEO. He responded to the inquiry on Twitter. So we have a lot of questions about it and we need him on this podcast. Exactly. <laughs> from there great show once again just thank you so much for getting parker on here our you know first ceo guest of the show so i think that's really exciting growth for us and excited for the into the next editions on this series as we work through the c-level the c-level decision makers and, and how they work with marketing i can't wait but till next time just it was fun and we will talk soon it's the making of a marketer this podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.